This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good evening, everyone, and uh, welcome to the Friday Twilight Show with me, James McInerney, our weekly look at issues affecting Scottish education. On the show this week, we'll be talking about the return to school amidst the Omicron wave, including the impact on this year's exams. And we'll also hear about what it's like growing up and teaching with a stammer. Don't go anywhere. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Well, hi, everybody. Uh, welcome back to the Friday Twilight Show with uh, with me, James McInerney, first one of the new year. Welcome to, to 2022. Doesn't it look great? Um, so we're going to talk about a few different things tonight. And for anybody who's not listened before, the idea behind the show is you know, fairly simple. Um, we're going to have a little look at the big issues each week affecting Scottish education. We're going to try and talk about some of the um, maybe ongoing issues that affect the school system up here as well. And I'm also hoping and certainly looking forward to talking to people from different aspects of the system and in particular, you know, trying to maybe tell a few of the sorts of stories that don't necessarily get, get told so often. But, you know, before we go into anything um, today, you know, for a lot of people, this will be the end, including myself, the end of, you know, the first few days back. And there are other schools that don't go back until, until next week. Um, but how are we all doing? You know, how's everybody? <laughs> how is everybody coping just now? Um, this kind of came up. I was having a conversation with some students and also with a a, a student a lecturer who's working with me just now. And I just found myself kind of wondering, you know, just how is everybody coping, and is there an outlet for it just now? Because I mean, I don't know how other people feel just now, but I mean, I'm in this is year eleven of teaching, and okay, these are very extreme circumstances and all that. I mean, I've been online completely online since this all this started, which is different obviously from people who are, who are in schools, but even all things considered, I've never I've never felt like this. I, I've never kind of gone into the new year feeling like this. And I've got friends and colleagues for whom January is always the bit that they really, uh, they really struggle with, you know, the January, February term. And certainly in Scotland, I don't know what it's like in England, but um, things like prelims and stuff like that, you know, um, tend to come up in January. It's the point at which, if you're certainly if you're teaching exam classes, it's the point at which the sort of um, the pressure starts to really be applied in terms of deadlines. If there are folios to be done, you know the exams around the corner. The, the year kind of the year kind of shifts gear a little bit more into or more towards. I always feel like kind of you know coaching. <laughs> um, we're, we're more concerned about you know getting to that kind of final point. As I say, I, I didn't feel like this any other year and I didn't feel like this even last year there's a message coming in the text and I'm exhausted two weeks off and back in Wednesday exhausted how are we going to cope with a, with a full week and I get it I hear you you know because I, I feel much the same way and you know I should stress I feel much the same way and I've got a, an easier gig than the school teachers have got teaching in an FE college um and I worry you know I worry about there must be particular people this is really hard for imagine Imagine being a probation, like a first year student right now, or a first year teacher, sorry, you know, being a student teacher would be bad enough, but imagine going through your probation year and having to cope with all of this and the kind of things we're going to talk about in a few minutes about, you know, the schools 
reopening as well. It, it must be incredibly difficult to be going through um, what is already a really brutal first year and going through it in these circumstances. So I think it's maybe going to be increasingly important for us to be maybe willing to talk about that and, and being quite open about the fact that even you know those of us who've been at this, in my case for a while, other people who've been at it a lot longer than me, are, are really, really feeling this. And I don't think it's maybe even necessarily getting through to you know, the powers that be and the people in charge whose who's view of teachers and schools is always basically, you know, that uh, they generate free child care and they should just go on with it. But I really, I worry, I always kind of worry about the state of the profession, I always worry about the pressure that's been put under and the, the workloads and things like that. Um, but something feels like it's, like it's really kind of at risk of, of going just now, you know. Um, and I think we really should be aware of that. But the other thing I wanted to talk a little bit about just mention on the that topic of being aware so because i'm teaching from home and i'm sitting in this little room that i'm in just now talking into this same little microphone talking down the camera to students and uh, my wife's at home as well she's a piano teacher so she hears me teaching through the day you know she'll be walking about doing stuff and i'll be sitting in here talking about you know um you know fergal king's prose or talking about you know Norman McCaig's poetry or teaching my journalism students or whatever it happens to be and um I had a bit of a rough day yesterday not because of the teaching the teaching's always grand you know but everything else getting a bit getting a bit much you know I'm not really doing great all the time just now like I think most other people and she just I don't, I don't know what made her say it but she just kind of out the blue said to me kind of yesterday even she's like you know I heard you, heard you teaching earlier on she just said you know you always sound happy when you're teaching and i think i mean she's you know she's right is the, is the first thing you know teaching's hard and there's other things that we could all be be going and doing and in some cases especially if you're you know a science teacher or something like that those other things are probably a lot better paid but the thing about teaching is that it, it's you know the teaching bit should make you happy and if the teaching bit doesn't make you happy, then that's the bit you've got a problem. It's not the stress and all that. It's not even feeling like you're feeling like you're a failure or something. The, the, the one of the best teachers I ever met, the person I you know massive air quotes here replaced when I went to Adam. Um, she'd been teaching thirty years, and everybody you ever spoke to who'd been in a room with her said she was the best teacher that they'd ever been around. And the the advice that that she gave me um, on our last day when I was there was that she'd spent 30 years waiting to be found out and that she thought in retrospect that this was probably the sign of a of a good teacher you know that kind of feeling and that kind of that kind, kind of approach so all the hard bits are always going to be there and there's nothing that's going to stop that even in an ideal situation with proper you know proper support for teachers you know proper non-contact time etc it is by definition a challenging and complex job but i think at its most basic level that's the realization i think i came to last night if you do not derive happiness from the actual teaching part of it that's probably the thing that's the big warning that you're not in the right job but if you do if that's what people if that's what people kind of listen and you know if that's what you recognize in yourself which is what i've recognized in myself as well um certainly last night and i suppose over the last last couple of years um it's pretty important to hold on to that don't you think especially now to remind ourselves of that that for, for for all the difficulties and for all the challenges and for all the fact that you know the profession is um although respected and viewed sort of well 
by the public as a, as a general rule, not really respected by the people in charge, certainly not respected by governments, politicians, and, you know, in Scotland, exam boards and things like that. But are we happy when we're teaching? Is it the teaching bit? Is it the talking? Is it the interacting? Is it the engagement? Do you derive genuine, you know, emotional happiness from that? Because I think if you do, that's that's the big part of it, isn't it? Everything else comes from that. I don't believe that teaching is a is a vocation. I don't buy that. I don't like this idea because it's, it's used to to make teachers feel like they should, you know, work for free and go beyond the contracts. I think it's a profession. I think it's a job at the end of the day. I think that teachers need to put themselves first, you know, because at the end of the day, it is a job and them and their families matter more. But deep down, really, if you're not, if you don't feel happiness from doing the teaching part, then um, that would be the bit that would worry me. But I do. And my wife started saying that to me last night, reminded me and really kind of really cheered me up, made me feel a lot better, especially because, you know, unlike all you teachers out there, like I've not been in a room with a student. It's, it's approaching two years. Um, and I do kind of worry every so often that, you know, maybe I maybe I don't love it anymore. Um, maybe I should just go and do Maybe this, this was the time to just go and do something else, you know, go and get a staffer's job somewhere, a research job somewhere and sit in an office nice and quietly, and you know, just do the stuff. Um, but after last night, it's just kind of reminded me why I haven't done that, and why why it matters so much to me, and why I'm still so um, enthusiastic and passionate about it, or or like to believe I am certainly. Uh, so I just wanted to have a, a little, you know, a wee thought about that. It only occurred to me as I was kind of just about to come on air, really, um, that maybe that's the kind of thing that we're talking about. We need to take those little bits of time, and we need to sort of take those opportunities to to feel a bit better about things. And so from that, let's now go. <laughs> let's uh, now go on to the uh, the huge source of stress and, and anxiety right now, which um, you know, which is the grand reopening of schools. So after the Christmas and New Year holidays, many schools in Scotland are back already. Uh, what the rest, I think, is Monday um, that they go back. The thing is that we're what two, three days in, and the numbers don't don't look good at all. Um, there are already absence rates amongst pupils that look pretty staggering and are at that kind of level where we're not talking about there's a few kids off and they catch up when they come back. We're talking about like maybe like a fifth of your class might not be there, you know. And the problem you've got is it's not as if like it's a one-off because when they come back, everyone will be back. The threat just now is that you've got a, a rolling absence rate at that kind of level. And I don't care how good a teacher you are, nobody should be expected to, to catch a class up under those circumstances because it isn't it isn't going to be possible um but opening schools is is vital opening schools is is the thing opening schools has become the political thing that had to happen you know um nicola sturgeon has, has essentially had kind of staked a reputation on it effectively um and we were at that kind of point where it was going to take something absolutely extraordinary for them not to go ahead with it the, the language has been tempered there's a, a text coming in there six teachers and two office staff absent absent today in a single school and i've heard there been some horror stories of schools as well 20 30 percent of staff and stuff like that um as I say, Nicola Sturgeon has tempered her language a bit because a couple of weeks ago we were getting hit with nonsense about how schools were going to open as normal. And I did say at the time that it wasn't just, the issue wasn't just that that was inaccurate because schools are not operating as normal and it's it's just patently ridiculous to claim that they were. The issue is, of course, that politicians, especially in Scotland with its weird quasi-presidential style we've ended up with, you know, politicians talking like that is making things worse. 
It's making things worse for teachers, it's making things worse for pupils because they can see things aren't normal and it just puts massive, massive stress where it doesn't need to be. So, you know, the language had been tempered a little bit, but we're still at this stage of there is a political imperative that says that schools had to open, things had to appear as normal as possible. Now, before I discuss any more of this, can we clarify something to try to preempt some of the inevitable with this, right? First things first, nobody wants schools closed. Nobody wanted school closed, schools closed at any part of this horrific two years that we've all that we've all lived through, that we are continuing to live through for this foreseeable future. Okay? This idea that anybody out there is, you know, agitating because school closures is what they were after is just absurd. Okay? I don't want my son to have to stay home from school again. I don't want him to not see his friends for days and weeks on end. I don't want him to miss out on time with his absolutely fantastic teacher. I don't want any of that. And I don't want that for your kids. I don't want that for your pupils. And, and genuinely, you know, nobody does. But we need to be honest about the situation in schools because there's lots and lots of talk about how school closures mean a loss of learning and school closures have these negative impacts and certainly I'm sure school closures will have a negative impact of course they do and again no one's ever denied that however we find ourselves in a situation now where the government north of the border and south of the border actually have spent two years not bothering to make schools safe so, you know, today in Scotland, we're sending kids into freezing cold classrooms. Literally, you know, kids going in and told to wear thermals, keep their jackets on and stuff like that. And we're doing that to make adults feel better. Don't be kidding ourselves on here, right? We're doing it to make adults feel better. We're doing it so that adults can go to work. And we're doing it so that adults can pretend that things are normal. And adults can pretend that everything's okay and not maybe have to quite confront all the anxiety of just what it is our kids have actually gone through in the last two years. Because trust me, in the, <laughs> the, what our kids have gone through in the last two years is not well defined by, and schools were closed for a bit. It is on a much, much, much grander scale. And we're going to be unpicking it for a very, 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 very long time. So ask yourself, you know, sending kids into freezing cold schools to make adults feel, how much learning is going on? How much real high quality learning is going on? Or is it just the case that we are telling ourselves that as long as we're sending the wains physically into a building that has the word school over the door, that there we go, job done, let's move on. Because I would perhaps argue that the latter isn't really necessarily, you know, taking account of young people's well-being and isn't really particularly motivated by that. So, and this is going to apply no matter, no matter the age, if we're talking about like, you know, my boy's seven. Uh, if they're going into school and it's freezing cold, like you know, how much are you really going to get them to, to to you know do the kind of work that you're after and to work together and to concentrate and all that and engage with it and enjoy it, which is the important thing at that age, you know, when they're freezing cold, or is the freezing cold a problem? So we keep the windows shut. We're going to shove them into a room. His his uh, his class is twenty nine kids in it because that SMP promise of way way back when never never came to pass. So it's either freezing cold classroom or one you know, filling up with exhaled air and who's to say who in the room's got, got COVID. Is this really a good thing for anyone's learning? And what and at the other end of schools, up in high schools, do we really think that 16-year-olds who are sitting trying to figure out if they can feel their fingers because it's Scotland in wintertime are really going to be, you know, taking in 
you know, the stuff they're learning in their physics class and their English class and their science. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. It's and it, it doesn't stand up to even the slightest bit of intellectual scrutiny. But there are some people who want to paint even a, a tiny hint of nuance around all of this. There's some kind of sign that people hate schools, hate kids, hate working parents, etc., etc., etc. So you know, as pair as we've had for you know nearly the last two years now, you go and look at the sort of unhinged comments from you know, groups that us for them and stuff like that. Still, you know, it's still whining, masks being child abuse and this kind of nonsense, you know. But also, you know, celebrating this thing about you know we're sending the kids into school as if it as, as if that's all that matters, but it's some kind of battle being won by doing that. Ironically, you know, they seem to operate in these really unbelievably basic childlike terms. The kids are going into the building and that is victory. Our enemies beat it. We win the we win you, whoever you are, this you know amalgamous, you know, conspiracy out there, you lose, you know. Um and is this really is this in, is, is I was going to say is this helping kids? Is it even about the kids? You know, is is anyone really going to try and argue that huddling a bunch of wings together in a freezing cold classroom is better for learning than them being at home? Um if that home learning had been properly planned and organised or was being properly planned and organised and supported. I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced that, you know, a 15, 16, 17-year-old is better off in that situation than they are being supported to work in an environment that, you know, they're not sitting freezing to death in, for example, or where they're not sitting hugely anxious about what's going on around them, as as we're going to mention in a second, because there have been changes to things like self-isolation rules. And I suppose, you know, <laughs> just kind of amazed in some ways that the Scottish government has managed to create yet another edu shambles out of all of this. There's the, the, the refusal to learn lessons is absolutely staggering and i don't think i'm just saying that as a teacher whose job it is, is to get people to learn lessons um the refusal to understand that failing to act early is devastating is is just bizarre the refusal to learn lessons about planning based on what you know as opposed to planning based on wishful thinking is is unforgivable because the damage it's doing all the time is massive. And it's not like it's just one-off damage either because anyone in positions of power, now I presume they don't listen to this show, but just in case, but anybody in positions of power who thinks that, for example, all of this isn't going to have an impact on things like staff retention or teacher recruitment is just kidding themselves on. So it's not just the fact that there have been these failures over the last two years that have impacted on kids. It's the fact that those failures over the last couple of years are going to continue to impact on kids. And they're also kind of making it hard to defend other aspects of, of policy up here. So one of the big differences in Scotland and England just now is um, large outdoor events being restricted to, to 500 people. Now that's the, the most obvious um, impact of that, shall we say, is, is, is the football. So football matches are going to be restricted to 500. This is a big problem for the Premier League teams in Scotland who depend on match day revenue. Can't, you know, and, and 500 is not enough for that, that sort of revenue. Especially if you're Celtic and Rangers, a particular issue, you're losing, you know, 55, 60,000 seats, whatever it is in your, um, in your stadiums. And football fans kicked off about this and you had this whole thing, how they were being persecuted and all this kind of rubbish, right? And I spent, you know, the whole time basically saying, and, and I say this as a football fan, a big, big Celtic fan, right? But people really needed to get a grip. Because what they were sort of willfully ignoring was the fact that the issue wasn't um, thousands of folk in a football stadium that's outdoors spreading COVID. 
the issue was that they all need to get there. <laughs> um, and a lot of that's on public transport and it's all on public transport at the same time. So it's not necessarily even like thousands of folk going to shopping centres because a lot of them are driving and the ones that aren't, they're going sort of throughout the day. Whereas with a football stadium, even with kind of staggered entry, given the terrible public transport services in Scotland. Um, it's it's not quite so easy to be sure that you're not going to have packed, packed public transport full of football fans who, you know, given the circumstances, didn't really need to be there. So that decision was made to try and protect some capacity and try and stop some kind of spread. And a lot of us have been defending that, and I think that makes sense, but it becomes an awful lot harder to defend it to people when there's basically being told, you know, you can't go on a bus to the football with 10, 20 people on it but your kids can go on the bus into school and then be in an unventilated classroom for six hours. So I think um, it's not going to get any easier over the next few weeks. There is a pretty big chance that we are staring down the barrel of school closures. That's already been fairly clear. I've actually been told today, two different people, um, anonymously, <laughs> um, about their schools planning remote learning for, for next week. And if remote learning now happens on this kind of like ad hoc emergency basis, it's going to be a catastrophe again, because the government has basically prevented teachers from planning for it properly. Now, in an attempt to head that off, to keep people, to keep schools open, to keep things ticking over, the government's so desperate to, to keep all that happening. And, you know, let's not uh, beat around the bush, so desperate to keep capital happy, you know. Um, the changes to self-isolation rules have been announced. And again, in fairness to the Scottish government, they have been more cautious than places like England, for example, um, on this point, and certainly more cautious than the absolutely wild approach of the CDC um, over in the USA. But the changes have now been made, and it's very obvious that the changes are being made to try to get more people able to go to work and into schools and stuff like that. It's not just about trying to get, um, you know, try to deal with hospital absences, for example. A big part of this is basically just money must be made places and people need to go to work for that. Uh, hence why schools must stay open. And Nicola Sturgeon herself said, you know, these changes are not without not without risk. Question you want to be asking yourself is, who, however, is shouldering that risk? Because I don't think it's Nicola Sturgeon and I don't think it is politicians. I don't think it's the people in charge. I actually think for them, they are doing this because the alternative is more risk to them politically. In Scotland, you can now end your self-isolation after seven days. There is a, now, I was going to say if you're vaccinated, but then I, I was reading up before I started this, the NHS Reform website, and it seems to be suggesting you don't need to be vaccinated for this, that it applies to everybody, but nonetheless, what we were told was if you were over 18 and fully vaccinated, you could um, use LFTs basically to end isolation after seven days instead of 10. But if you're under 18, the vaccination rule didn't apply. Oh, no, sorry, if you're under, what was it, 18, 18 years and four months for some reason? I'm sure there's a reason. Um, it didn't apply at all under that kind of age. Just you do the LFTs every day and then you can come back after seven. That's a decision being taken to increase the chances of your kids being in school, in classrooms, with people who are still infectious with COVID. That's what that is. And, you know, to quote Nicola Sturgeon from a bit of a bad-tempered, um, or to channel Nicola Sturgeon, sorry, from a, a bad-tempered uh, response to a, a Daily Mail journalist a few weeks ago, which was funny because it's still the Daily Mail. Um, when she was asked, could you do something about isolation? You know, oh, yeah, that would be great because that would just spread the virus everywhere. 
So what we've got now, yep, this is great. <laughs> you know, could just spread the virus everywhere. And it gets worse because there are actually additional aspects of the guidance that have emerged. I think I first saw them. Monica Lennon, MSP, had, had tweeted something about them in, in healthcare and wondering if it also applied to education. And I was kind of reading the NHS Inform website before I came on here. There's another angle to all this stuff, and it's a little kind of extra bit of information about, ah, but listen, if you're in isolation early, we need to bear a few things in mind. But this extra advice, which I'm about to read out to you, was not, it wasn't even mentioned as far as I know. And the fact that it wasn't put, when I read this to you, right, the fact that it wasn't put absolutely front and centre looks incredibly, dangerously irresponsible to me. You know, it's like criminally, maybe not quite criminally, but who knows, I'm not a lawyer, but wildly irresponsible, incredibly dangerous, not making it clear what they were doing here. And realistically, why, would, why wouldn't you put it front and centre? Because when you hear what I'm going to read to you here, the, the questions they would have been asked immediately would have been very, very difficult, and who likes that? So here's what it says. Okay, if you're one of the people who can end isolation early, you should, and I'm now quoting, limit close contact with other people outside your household, especially in enclosed spaces, until 10 days after your contact with the positive case. Wear a face covering in enclosed spaces and where you cannot maintain physical distancing. Limit contact with anyone who is at highest risk until 10 days after your contact with a positive case. Not visit people in care homes, hospitals, prisons or other detention centres until 10 days after your contact with a positive case unless essential and agree with staff in advance and continue to take part in weekly, uh, twice weekly lateral flow device testing after the 10 days. And that is from nhsinform.scot. So, this seems to me, the way I read this, as an English teacher who, you know, I like to think, could read some words. You may be able to end isolation on day seven, but if you do, you need to limit your contact with anybody who's not in your household and uh, try and avoid enclosed spaces and definitely limit contact with anyone who's highest risk. So how the hell do you go to school? How do you go into a school on, after seven days? If you're being told to limit your contacts with other households, especially in enclosed spaces, up until 10 days, what exactly is a classroom if we're not going to talk about it as being a place where you're going to have close contact with people outside your household in an enclosed space? Like, surely that's exactly what we're talking about here. The other thing, and the bit that really, that really is playing on my mind with it, Limit contact with anyone who's at highest risk until 10 days after your contact with the positive case. How do you know? How, how is that? How could you possibly, how could schools possibly manage that? The, the, the logistics of it, if it's more than a, than a couple of students, I suppose, doesn't, doesn't really bear thinking about. And there's all sorts of complications because ultimately to do it, you might need to be moving people around, but you've been moving X student based on the medical history of Y student. And there are, you know, there are issues with that there because some of the, the reasons that you might want to do that might be things that aren't known in the class. So this just seems to me, if you're a student who's at high risk, if you're a parent who's at high risk, which by the way is you know, my son's other parent, the Scottish government has just taken a decision on the basis of trying to keep people going to work, which has just put a lot, of, seems to have put a whole bunch of people at risk, and certainly as a, as a, as a, somebody you know whose whose partner has cystic fibrosis and is at high risk, that is how it feels to me. 
um, very, very much just now. So, again, you know, it's a difficult situation. Things are changing as we go. Um, it's very fluid. It's very complicated. Yeah, all, all absolutely fine. And maybe, maybe there was no alternative to these rules. Maybe if you, maybe you know, a failure to make these kind of changes was going to lead to some catastrophic failure somewhere else, and there really was no alternative. But to not put that guidance about keeping keeping yourself and other people safe after the seven days, which, as I say, makes pretty clear that this end in isolation after seven days thing is uh, is very very risky because they're making an explicit point to you to limit your contact. For the next three days it's almost like it's kind of intended for right listen see for three days you can go out the house if you need to you want to go for a walk that's okay but going to not go to the supermarket going to not go to an office going to not for example you would think go into schools absolutely bizarre to me certainly and i would appreciate at some point if we could have some kind of clarity on how this came about but knowing the scottish government and knowing the foi processes as i do i think we can probably safely assume that isn't that isn't going to be the case. And we've got this, a similar kind of thing going on with exams. Because all these absences and all these issues have massive, massive knock-on effects for the prospect of a national exam diet starting in April. I think it's April this year, April, end of April starting May. The government and the SQA are desperate, absolutely desperate for them to go ahead because three years of no exams is a catastrophe for them, primarily because if there's three years of no exams and the sky doesn't fall down, then all of a sudden... It becomes difficult to answer questions about why must we go back to the system that we had before that's very un as we now know deeply unfair inherently um systemically unfair system if we have in scotland our senior phases s4 5 and 6 that's when they sit exams if there's no exams this year it's a full senior phase and people will have gone through it and still want to college they've got the uni still got jobs so they're very very keen for it to go ahead um, they're also keen because they have done basically, it seems, no work on the alternatives and don't really have much of a clue what's um, what's going on. So I previously asked about, you know, what are the cutoffs? How are you going to decide if you're going, when, when and if you're going to say cancel exams? And was told by the government that they could do it as late as the end of March, which is absolutely insane. And um, was basically told there are no cutoffs, there are no triggers. There was nothing specific that they were looking at, which is very, very reassuring, of course. This is now magnified because the SQA, in a comment in an article in the Herald, um, made it quite clear that they're desperate to do as little as possible. So that, that comment, um, I'm quoting half of it here, uh, a school's return, if there is significantly more disruption across the country than that experience last year, then we will take further steps to help learners by providing support for exam revision where possible. If that happens, it's important that information is provided at the right time to support revision. Providing this advice too far in advance may have the negative consequence of narrowing the teaching of courses, which would be detrimental to learners' knowledge and understanding and to the next steps in their learning. So if we um, offer support too soon, then, you know, those damn teachers uh, might might make things worse. It's good to know where the SQA stands on that one. But that first point, a school's return, if there is significantly more disruption across the country than that experience last year. Well, hold on a second. Why does there need to be more disruption across the country than last year to cancel exams that didn't happen last year or the year before? So this doesn't make sense, in it, even at this point, even in its own terms. Um, and then you get, you know, uh, providing support for exam revision where possible. The SQA seem quite keen to get the idea of um, not running exams off the table. What they're offering here, and I don't know what the situation is in England, what exam boards are kind of offering or preparing, but what they're kind of offering here, this thing of revision help, 
is to basically um, pre-advise people of the topics going to come up in exams. Now, this is the kind. This is I mean, it's obviously daft, right? And it's the kind of thing. It's the kind of really, really stupid policy that you land on when you can see how bad things are getting, but you're worried about upsetting the Daily Mail and that sort of readership. But here's the thing, right? What do you think the Daily Mail are going to, and, the, and their readership are going to do with a situation where students are getting exam topics ahead of time? They'll be just as angry about that. So why, uh, you know, why bother? Why worry about it? Why, why put yourself in this situation? And it's not going to work for all subjects either. There may be some subjects where you've got papers that, you know, in this section of the paper, one of four topics can come up. This year, we're going to tell you it's just one of two or it's going to be this one. But you don't know exactly what it is or what you'll write, et cetera, et cetera. But that's not going to work like for my subject of English. Critical essays, they can't give us the questions in advance because that will just be literally just memorising essays. And if that's all you want, then we'd be as well just doing it from the start. You can't give us the reading paper in advance because you would just prepare the whole thing. So it's not going to be fair. It's not going to be balanced. And realistically, you know, it's the SQA. It's not going to be competent either. So there needs to be some thought at this point about exams. And again, we're far too late. This should have been months ago. But a national exam diet kind of by definition doesn't take into account regional variations in things like COVID absences, doesn't take into account the fact that those absences will be uh, more concentrated amongst people from more deprived backgrounds, can't take individual circumstances into account, even though we're in the second year and what will be the third exam period of a pandemic, of a once in a lifetime deadly pandemic that has killed huge numbers of people. So that proposal of that national exam diet is something very serious and needs actual genuine consideration. Can it possibly be fair? We cancelled the exams last year, months in advance, not because we couldn't run exams in May fairly, uh, safely, sorry, but because we couldn't run them fairly, because there had been disruption already to teaching and it was going to get in the way of whether or not students would be on any vaguely level playing field, which they're not really, but the level playing field that we even like to pretend exists, you know. Um, but it doesn't exist this year either. So why are we not at the same point of saying, let's put the kids first? Let's put young people first. Maybe we've put young people, you know, maybe the last two years of just, you know, doing that has just been too difficult for the SQA and the Scottish Government. Maybe they just can't stomach it one more time, you know. And also, maybe they just can't stomach a situation that would once again mean having to put their trust in the teaching profession. Because as we know, putting their trust in the teaching profession is pretty much a worst case scenario for this lot. They are just simply not prepared to do it. And no amount of their own failures over the last couple of years seems likely to convince them that actually the problems are coming from their side and not from the side of professionals who simply want to do their best for the young people in their classes and for the people who are running schools and desperately, desperately trying to make things work amid situations created by people not having to cope with them, not having to do the legwork, people who know somebody else will fix their mistakes and people who are concentrating on the risks to them politically as opposed to the risks to young people. Okay, we're going to go to uh, the news and the tech news just now. When we come back, we'll be talking to my guest, this week, who is um, a teacher from Scotland named Adam Black. So we'll be back in a few minutes. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching 
alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cat. To find out more, follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondelettersandsounds.org.uk. Teachers Talk Radio is delighted to support Winston's Wish, the UK's childhood bereavement charity. Winston's Wish supports children and their families after the death of a parent or sibling. They provide emotional and practical bereavement support. Expert teams also provide online resources, specialist publications and training for professionals. Find out more about Winston's Wish and pledge your support at www.winstonswish.org. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. This weekend, the 8th and 9th of January, the Eaton Project is offering free entry to all in the education sector. Ice skating is still on, and all is free if you bring your proof of employment with you. A payslip, photo ID, name badge or membership card are all acceptable as proof of employment. Teachers, teaching assistants, school, college and university staff and home educators all qualify for free entry. Schools in Mozambique have been adversely affected by terrorism. According to ADRA, the Adventist Development and Relief Agency, only eight out of 17 districts in the Cabo de Lago region have operational schools. Since 2017, according to the report, 46 schools have been vandalised and 173 forced to close. To date, eight teachers are reported to have been killed in Pemba, the capital of Cabo Delgado. Schools in the province are expected to open on the 22nd of January, but it is thought that persistent terror attacks might derail this plan. In Syria, Ramadan Darwish, director of the Centre for Educational Measurement and Evaluation, revealed that the number of dropouts in Syria over the past 10 years exceeds 1.1 million students. He said that it would be a significant challenge to bring young people back to education if they have joined the labour market. UNICEF estimates that 2.1 million children in Syria and 700,000 children in neighbouring countries are deprived of education, while a further 1.3 million students are at risk of dropping out of school. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. 
Happy New Year! This is the first in a short series on the New Year's resolution a lot of us make and the effect tech can have on it. Can technology really help us get fit and healthy? According to the Fitness Industry Association, around 80% of people who sign up to a gym in January stop going in February. Can technology provide a free alternative? Now, before I start, I need to throw down a disclaimer here. I am assuming you already have a mobile device that is capable of running apps, therefore the cost of the device is written off, and I take no responsibility for any pain, both physical and or mental that you will inflict on yourself. You are responsible for your own scaling and moderation. That being said, there are thousands of free fitness apps out there. The first barrier for teachers is time. School Week have reported one in four teachers working over 60 hours a week, so in a 12-hour day, where do you fit a workout in? If the gym's out of the question, what are the other alternatives that are time flexible? Let's start with some totally free options. YouTube is full of fitness videos and challenges from sit-ups and press-ups to squats and chin-ups. A more extreme example is Athlean X. This channel is dedicated to workouts with pro trainer Jeff Cavalier. Some claiming to make a difference in just seven minutes a day. This may seem crazy, but seven minutes is a lot more than nothing and adds up to more than three quarters of an hour per week. If you're more of a social media motivated person, how about one of the many fitness tracking apps for walking, running or cycling? Most have a free basic package and in-app purchases for additional features. If I use Strava as an example, a free basic package allows you to track your exercise, join friends, set challenges and meet people around the globe with similar interests. My only word of warning would be to ensure you consider your profile settings to keep yourself safe. Hiding the start and end of a walk, run or ride, for example, will stop your home being shown on a map. For most people pushed to time, this will be where you start and end your exercise. Also, if you exercise regularly at the same time, this could be showing the world where you're likely to be or when your house is empty. For those who want to start softly and just be a bit more active, a less intensive option may be having a step counting app. Again, there are lots of different apps out there. My example is Sweatcoin, a free app that allows you to earn Sweatcoins, a form of digital currency that can be traded in the Sweatcoin store for discount codes, vouchers, and even given to good causes. This is a simple app and can run in the background, so you don't even need to remember to switch it on. Finally, calorie counter apps are a great way to look at what is actually going on in your body in the first place. On apps like MyFitnessPal, you can log your weight, calorie consumption, calorie output, and also have the ability to sync this with other fitness apps, so you don't need to log your exercise twice. As long as you're honest and log all of those glasses of Prosecco, not just the first, you're rewarded with detailed feedback on not only your calorie intake and output, but where those calories came from. Whatever you choose to do for the new you in the new year, why not do a bit of looking around and see what you can pick up for free first? I'll leave you with one of my favourite sayings, anyone can do nothing. For a visual version of this episode, check out the TT Radio 2021 Twitter feed. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Okay, so welcome back, everybody. Um, I'd like to introduce my my guest for this week. Now, um, the person I'm going to introduce you to here is, to be honest, is exactly the kind of person that I really wanted to be able to have on on the show when I when I kind of started this. Um, he's not somebody who's you know running some big um, you know government funded scheme for lots of kudos just now or anything like that. He's not somebody who is. Um, you know, necessarily the kind of like you know really high profile person or anything, but it's someone that I've actually have known for a while. I've met him met him before quite a long time ago, um, and the reason I'm gonna he's here to speak to us today is his name's Adam Black, and Adam Black is a teacher working in a school in Scotland, and is somebody who is doing that and is living with a stammer, and 
I'm actually I really, I really like, you know, I appreciate him um, sort of coming along and, and talking to us um, about all of this, because as I say, it gives us a chance to have a quite, I think, a different kind of discussion around education issues than we're sometimes able to have. So uh, welcome, Adam, and uh, thank you very much for, for agreeing to join us. I, I genuinely, I really appreciate it. James, thanks for having me on. That's appreciated. Looking forward to it. Um, so I suppose um, maybe the first thing to ask people here, you know, um, just in case, you know, I'll introduce you there as a teacher with a stammer. Can you tell us a little bit, you know, what do we mean by that? What is that? So a stammer or a stutter, like both of those terms can be used interchangeably, is a neurological condition. And basically, it affects the forward flow of speech. And what I mean by that is you either hear repetition, prolonging of sounds, or the blocking of words and sounds. So it's really when the pathways in my brain form speech, they're not fluid. There's a little bump in them. And that bump translates through those three things, the repetition, the prolonging of the sounds, or of the blocking. And along with that, with stammering, can come a bit of tension. So you might have seen people stammer and you might see facial tension. You might see sort of tricks and, and habits. So one that I used to use was to stamp my feet. If I couldn't say a word, I would maybe stamp my foot to try and get a word out. So stammering is exactly that. So the big thing is it's neurological. So once you get to a certain age and you're still stammering, you will always stammer. So that golden age is about 11. So some children go through primary disfluency up to about the age of 11. 11 onwards is generally when you're sort of stuck with a stutter, so to speak. And it's found in every culture. About 1% of the world uh, stutter, although recently some research is out to say that it could be as much as 3% of the world's population. So if you put that in comparison with something like autism, which is sitting about a percent as well, about 1% of the world's population, uh, there's a lot of people and certainly a lot of pupils out there. However, there aren't many teachers out there that are stuttering and it's not a job that a lot of people think somebody with a, a speech disability or a hidden disability as it's known would do. It's, okay, so that I mean that's one of the things um, I was going to ask that after, but we can maybe just get into it just now. Then um, you said I said yourself there. It's there's not maybe a lot of teachers with a stammer. Teaching no. being that job where you're doing all your talking all the time, and one of those jobs where um, I know not everybody views it this way. I don't, for example, but I know lots of people have this view of teaching that. Um, the classroom side of it is effectively like, uh, like performance. And so as you mm -hmm. kind of said there, it's maybe one of these jobs that people might just kind of automatically assume isn't appropriate, you know, for somebody with a stammer or, you know, isn't the kind of area that, that, that you would go into. Um, so I suppose I'm kind of interested in as a <laughs> how come you're a teacher? Because there must have been Surely there must have been at some point in the past when you've been going to be a teacher, you know, has somebody stopped you and kind of done the whole like, oh, I don't know, I mean, teaching, that'll be really tough, you know, what about the kids, they'll make fun of that, you know, so like, 
how how did you end up becoming a teacher and why you know <laughs> yeah no I, I, you're right i mean it, it's certainly something that i remember as a people thinking i thought teaching looked like a great job the majority of teachers i came across looked happy it looked fun you know there was certainly you know i remember watching the staff room window from the the school school grounds at lunchtime and stuff in secondary and you could see them all playing table tennis in their staff room and all that sort of thing i remember thinking that looks great but that, that will never be me and that was just that's just the way it was so i left school in fifth year i got my hires in fifth year and thought right i had enough and i went to college and i was doing a sports coaching course just really loved my sport and part of that course was to go and coach athletics and different types of sports to primary age children right okay i thought oh, i'm a bit nervous about that so i'm out in this school 17 18 and i'm teaching athletics and i remember stuttering openly and do you know what the people didn't bat an eyelid they were more interested in what i was saying rather than how i was saying it and it was like a real defining moment i thought my goodness they're not really bothered about that but that sort of landed with me, but I still didn't feel confident enough to go and pursue it. So I sort of stumbled across a therapy approach, which unusually was run by other people who stammer. So there was no professional speech therapists in there. And that was the changing point for me where they were saying, Do you know what, this is part of you and you can't change it. And something really just resonated with me with that. And I thought, you know, that's absolutely right. I'm going to do what I want now because I can't change this. Just like if I change my hair color, eventually the the color will fade. So if I pretend n n not to stutter or I change words all the time so that I don't stutter, eventually it's going to catch up with me. So I thought I'm going to stop running from this like I had done for the sort of first 18 years of my life. And I can honestly say that was that was a major moment for me because I thought I'm going to go and pursue that. I'm going to go and do the course that I want. I'm going to go to that party. I'm going to go on that holiday. I'm going to start doing all these things I'd never done before. So, yeah. So how did I end up teaching? So after doing my sports course and you know doing a degree in sports management as well, I'm now going to go back and retrain so the GD. And tough year, if anyone that's done that would know. Yes. But I got through it. And again, everywhere I went, you <laughs> just about got through it. But everywhere I went, I was just open about mm, mm, my stuttering. Again, I've never heard in it from anyone. And people were saying to me, oh, we're so pleased to have somebody like you in the school, somebody a bit different. And I started to realise this is actually, I'm sort of onto something here by being dead <laughs> honest about it talking talking about i'll refer to it as my quirk so although it is a hidden disability i've always thought of it as my quirk it's just what makes me me so yeah that's how i started to go down that route and, and i've used that as a bit of a springboard which we'll talk about later to to encourage others to think about their quirks and what makes them different that's yeah that's can i just pick up on something really interesting as well and this idea as somebody who now teaches in a college by the way you know to hear that kind of side of the story somebody who 
went to college or into this course and sort of through doing that has found this this thing that they want to do is a very nice thing to hear obviously yeah. can I just before we move on can I just pick something up you said there a decision that you made was not to not to hide who you are not to try and change who you are because what's the point you know if, if you dye your hair the, the color will come back yeah. will, the, the real you will come out eventually but one of the things that you said was yeah. you were going to decide not to change words so that you don't yeah. stammer. So is that a, because obviously part of my interest here and maybe part of the interest for listeners is going to be that there are young people across the country, as you say, about one, one to 3% coping with this. And I'm interested yeah. in the coping strategies. So is that a strategy that people try to use? Because it sounds exhausting. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's an absolute mega strategy for probably anyone who stutters is, you can pretty much tell when you're speaking if a word's coming up, if you're going to stammer on it. Right. So you can have long periods of fluency and then you can feel this word coming in and it might be the start of the sound or it might be in the middle of the word or whatever. You know you're going to stammer on that. So you can be three, four words ahead thinking of, right, what can I change that to? So it is exhausting. It's very tiring. And I remember, I mean, I remember coming home from school, you know, as a teenager, and just falling on the couch and falling asleep because my whole day was spent just constantly thinking two, three words ahead, never living properly in the moment, always thinking, what's coming up next? And I remember doing that thing, you know, when you'd read the play out in class and I'd be thinking, right, we're reading about three or four lines each. So I'd be racing ahead, maybe counting how many people were in front of me. And then checking, right, what am I going to have to say in 24 lines time? Right. I feel like in that moment I was plotting, you know? So that is a major strategy. So they call that, uh, they call that substitution, where you substitute a different phrase or word in, in, in place of it. Uh, another one is just complete avoidance. So you might just avoid saying a word or you might avoid a situation. That is another major strategy for those who stutter, it's it's a lot easier now, I've got, it's got to be said. Like, I do wonder where I would be if I, if I was an 18 year old now, with everything being online and, you know, you can avoid interaction for a long, a long yeah. period of time, you know? So so I do I do wonder about that, but that is a major strategy. And when a young person stutters, um, there, there's different different things you might notice. I don't know if I could go into that. That might be of interest to people. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Notice. yeah. Yeah, please do. So, uh, I mean, when a child or young person stutters, there are some overt behaviours. So they might change their words, as I've said. You might see them clenching their hands. So they're like using a physical trick. So they might clench their hands. Uh, they might cough. They might give quite abrupt answers. They might lose their eye contact and, you know, stare at the ground or look away. They might put their hands all over their face or they might fiddle with their glasses they're doing these things so that you're looking somewhere else and you're maybe not looking at them stuttering so these are all tricks and the brain is a clever thing and it's doing it without them realizing these mm -hmm. are tricks that build up and they they manifest in a certain way another big one is they use filler words so people who stutter can often use lots of filler words like and you know sort of and they use these on a run-up to speaking. So it's a way of, if I know a word's coming up, they call it a bounce. So let's say I was going to struggle on the word carpet. So I'm saying, oh, I really like the colour of that, you know, carpet. 
so you use it as a bounce to get into the words that hey, okay. you you're going to struggle with. Yeah. So you probably met people who you, you might just think aren't very articulate, but it's because they may be putting in so many filler words so that, so that they avoid stuttering. And the reason they want to avoid stuttering is because of years of sort of pain and years of isolation through it. So they've, they've gained these strategies that stop the stuttering. And, and allow them to, yeah. I mean, the, the phrase, because you, you talked about, you know, the, in numbers comparison, you mentioned autism, obviously, um, and the word yeah. that often comes up in autism is masking. Um, yeah. it, does, it sounds yeah. like this is a, the, the principle of this sounds very similar. You know, you've got, and I think the, the interesting thing here, of course, is that for these examples that you're given is, I wonder how many teachers listen to this and could have got this thing clicking, because I definitely have, and can go and, I wonder if that was what was happening yeah. there with that student I'm currently teaching or that student I had years and years ago, you know, because a lot of those behaviours yep. that you that you mentioned, um, some more than others, but some of those behaviours are the kind of things which get um, presented as examples of bad behaviour, of um, lack of attention. Yep. So you see this thing in some school, schools. I mean, I've never been um, never been shy about it. I think it's at best idiotic and at worst abusive but you know the kind of the slant stuff and you must make eye contact all the time and all that that kind of yep. thing you know that sort of really i mean i think it's awful really horrible way to treat kids but one of the issues with it should I mean you know a kid with a, with, a, with a stammer or something like that that must be a really quite hostile environment for them absolutely i mean the, the I, I know a guy who as a pupil whenever they were reading out loud in English, he would do something awful. He would maybe stand up and swear or stand up and spit in the floor or something like that so that the teacher would kick him out. To get chucked out. So he would avoid having, aye. So that was a total, like the masking is the right, it's a coping strategy. And it's just one of those things. He said, I didn't want to do it, but that was better than putting it all out there in front of people, making myself so, such a vulnerable state. I'd rather just not do that. And, and that's what it is. And, and, and so that's much, what stuttering does. And so much of that must as well come down to um, so much of that must be down to questions of the environments that we create in our classrooms. Because, so, for example, one of the things I'm I'm really big on that I'm always you know hammering my students with is that if you're not prepared to make mistakes, you're not going to learn. And those mistakes yep. sometimes need to be public because that's part of it, you know? And so I've spent, I mean, I'm in my, I think, 11th year now of, of, of teaching, but right from the start, something I was always very conscious of was I want an environment, I need an environment where students are comfortable making mistakes. But, and I think that has lots and lots of benefits. But if you have an environment where students, for whatever reason, feel don't feel comfortable, don't feel safe, don't feel supported, then students like the ones that you're talking about are, you can't really blame them, you know, can you, for this kind of, you know, getting chucked out is going to be bad, but it's not that bad, and it's not as bad as having to stand here and feel humiliated yep. in front of my teacher and all these other people in my, all my pals. Yep, yeah, and, that, and that's it, and actually with stuttering, and this is a conversation for another day, but I still feel it's one of the only neurological conditions where it sort of still made fun of in a way through through the media. Like you think of Porky Pig, he was a cartoon character who stuttered and he was thick 
and he was always making mistakes. You think of Arkwright from Open All Hours, you know, there was a comedy aspect there with the stutter. So the reason people who stutter are afraid to put it all out there is because society tells us, actually, this is sometimes okay to laugh at people who stutter. Yeah, so, so kids, there's like a deep root. Yeah, thing. kids behaving this way, kids behaving in this really sort of defensive or protective way are in fact actually behaving quite rationally given the circumstances yeah, yeah. in which they find themselves you know like it's it's you know there's, there's not really much to be gained from us as adults getting annoyed at students you know not doing what we want them to do when actually when you look at it at, sort of from their perspective you find that actually they're making the rational choice that most of us would make if we were put in that situation aren't they yeah that's it it's just self-preservation but like you say the environments teachers can create can be easily done and and i've worked with with Training training sessions across local authorities. When I've taught in Glasgow, East Renfrewshire, and now teaching in South Lanarkshire, and I've run training sessions on stammering for staff. And it's little simple things can make such a difference if you know somebody stutters. But it's things like mm, modelling your own rate of speech. So if you know somebody in the class stutters, modelling sort of slow but articulate speech. Is better for everyone, but certainly better for somebody who stutters who doesn't feel the need to keep up. You know, if mm -hmm. you're rattling off at three thousand words per minute, then there's an expectation for you know that's that's the tone and that's that's the tone in the class set. So little things like that. If you know somebody stutters, certainly when you're modelling speaking to them, it's concise, it's slow, it's measured. There's good passionate eye contact and what i mean by that is it's not intense that you're going to punch them but it's supportive <laughs> but you're you're there for them um so it's it's that sort of little things you can do but get the wider issue is that you might not know somebody stutters because yeah. it's not it's a disability that's not it, you know it's hidden so yeah so we've got we've got work to do uh, from a society sort of model um i guess the social model disability do we need do we need everyone to change or is it up to the stutterers to change? You know, who knows? There's, there's, you know, there's an argument on both sides of the stammering community on that one. But certainly I think as educators, we can do what we can for those peoples in our care. Yeah, absolutely. As, and I mean, to go with your sort of your, your percentages earlier on, like, I mean, what do you need? If you've got a school with 100, 100 or more pupils, you've got, statistically speaking, you've got a people struggling with this. And well, actually, there can't be... see the, the the sorry, the numbers that I gave you earlier were for adults. It's higher for pupils. Right. So between for so up to up to sixteen, we're talking between five and seven percent. Okay, so, so even, me, more. even if we yeah. take the the five percent of that, you know, um, yeah, you've got like you've got a, a hundred, a, a, even a tiny tiny school with a hundred. Because I mean, I taught um taught and I think our school role was like two hundred pupils at the high school, which yeah. one of the one of the weest, you know, but. Yeah. Five percent of two hundred still ten students walking about, yeah. struggling, yeah. and ten students. So when you think about it like that, you know, I could have named every single one of two hundred students when I when I walked to Aaron. So those are yeah. ten students who I would have known. Those are ten people I could have named. These are, you know, we're not yep. talking about it. It shouldn't. I should clarify here. You know, it shouldn't matter if we're talking about one person in the whole country or we're talking about thousands. That's that's part yeah. of the issue here, but. Yeah. in terms of why it's so important in people to start thinking about this yeah like every teacher in their career is going to teach kids struggling with this and maybe part of the issue is every teacher in their career is going to teach kids who are struggling 
silently with this, who are masking this, who don't feel, because I, I mean, I don't know how you feel, I don't know how other teachers feel about this, but one of the things that kind of gets to me sometimes um, is that kind of anxiety about what if, you know, what if students don't feel comfortable? What if they don't feel support, supported? What if I'm let, that would be the kind of thing that I would always feel I'm letting people down. But so now I'm sitting here thinking, you know, I wonder how many students in the past I've really let down. But um, but that kind of sense of needing to be aware of it because we're actually encountering it all the time, and sometimes through the through our behaviours as adults in positions of responsibility and as professionals are we at times maybe making this worse for young people? Certainly worse than, than it has to be, which I suppose brings us to the next thing that I wanted, to, or, or the, the, the two final questions I wanted to ask in general order, but we'll start with this one. Um, when I, my, last, uh, my last episode, and uh, I spoke to Nusayath Mani, who is involved in anti-racist education, and we were talking about um, black and minority ethnic representation in the profession and how the numbers are horrific. Um, mm. Teacher, the, the, the overwhelmingly white profession, even in places like Glasgow, but up to a quarter of kids are, are not, not white. And we were talking a bit about why she felt it's so important for young people to see themselves as adults, you know, and something like, of all the professions that I think there are, I, I can scarcely think of one where that's more important personally, you know, so like, you know, the, the kids from minority ethnic backgrounds, I think, you know, they have a right to see people who look like them in these positions of authority, because it's that thing where you can't be what you can't see. Do you think that applies as much in this kind of circumstance? I think it applies. I don't see, I don't think it needs to be just people who stammer, but what I think is really important is just like you're saying there, so we're not all Caucasian faces. I think it's really important that we're not all perfect and that we're not all, you know, fine-tuned machines as teachers. And I think it's okay... They were human beings. For, <laughs> that's it. I think it's okay for pupils to see, as I described it, as a quirk. And I am really passionate about showing my quirk openly, honestly, but on my terms. So I'm in control of, you know, I'm okay with you finding this about my life. I'm okay talking about something really important to me, really, really ingrained in me. And what I found over the years, I'm the same as you, this is my 11th year teaching. So decade in, what I find is every school I go to, every class that I teach, somebody is dealing with something. Everyone's dealing with something, but somebody's dealing with something that they want to then talk about because I've been honest about it. It might yeah. be something that, that and, and without me being the way I've been, we wouldn't have had that discussion. That also stretches to parents at parents' night. I would parents approach me and talk about, you know, seeing you do this has given us hope for my son or daughter who has X, Y, or Z. And I think that's really important. I think we need more of our educators to come and talk about themselves on their own terms. And I found across three authorities and five schools, when you own something positively, even something you viewed as a negative, pupils are brilliant about it. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. And I've never heard anyone sort of take the piss or crack jokes or anything like that. And if there ever was a wee smirk, all I needed to do is say, listen, guys, this is part of me. I can't change it. We've all got bits about us that make us different. 
and that's all you need to say and you can see them really reflecting on that mm -hmm. so yeah so I, I i agree i think we need more of our teachers out there to be different yeah so because the, the word the word that we're reaching for here of course is neurodiversity isn't it um yes if, if it's if it's and i believe it is if it's important to show young people from you know non-white backgrounds that there are you know the teaching profession, as I say, of all the professions, of all the areas of life, you know, that it is something that is open to them and that they can see themselves in it, you know, that has to extend surely to neurodiversity as well. Particularly if we are meant to be creating, you know, this, um, or and if we're meant to be operating in a system that cares so much or simply proclaims to care so much about things like health and well-being. Because, you know, if we can't even bring ourselves to represent the, a, a neurodiverse society, in our yeah. teaching profession where you know we've got all these tools with which with which to work and where we know the benefit it can do it it really maybe does say something about us more broadly as a society as well that that sort of failure um interesting as well what you're saying that you know you've not had to kind of because some people would listen to this and before you got to that would assume i but every class you go into there'll be you know there'll be somebody in there cracking a joke it'll just be a nightmare you'll have constant you know the phrase that you what's the phrase they like um constant low level disruption and stuff like that you know <laughs> yeah, um yeah. and i must say and like but when you said that this thing about you know see when you're just straight with young people see when you just yep. openly say yeah this is the deal this is what's going on yep. actually an awful lot of the time i cannot help i think that what happens with the, these sorts of issues and, and various others is it's adult hang-ups and then we sort of imprint them onto kids because in all sorts of different ways one of the obvious ways certainly this is part of generation but one of the obvious ways is things like lgbt issues you know yeah. is that young people don't have the hang-ups that adults have got and they can certainly develop them particularly if they're in an education system that's you know grinding it into them i'm sure but like your experience seems to suggest that yeah to you that young people don't have these kind of hang-ups necessarily that that a lot of adults probably would instinctively have particularly about someone going into going to teach yeah and i think that the adult hang-up thing is you sort of hit the nail on the head as adults many of us haven't seen teachers or people in i'd use the phrase position of authority you know somebody that you might look up to or learn from be different like that yeah so of course we're, we're hung up about it because we've never seen it or we never experienced it at a time when our brain was forming and developing the pupils that i'm encountering and across you know several authorities are getting that so yeah they're not hung up on it because you've got somebody in front of them saying hey we're all we've all got our quirks here's mine and you know what it's beautiful you can you can use it for the best of you and certainly that's all i've tried to do is turn something which for many years I viewed as an absolute negative, something I hated. And now actually I'm totally in a way thankful where it's taken me on a journey, both professionally and personally. And and it's just it's just something to be celebrated. Absolutely, yeah. So I suppose maybe it's a, a, a last thing to to ask. Um what could we be what could we be doing? Are there things that we could be doing? You sort of touched on some of the things that we could maybe do to help kind of identify young people. You've mentioned a couple of things that maybe teachers can do when they're talking to them. So certainly on that side, what can we do to help young people make them feel comfortable and help them with, with this? Um, but also, are there things that you think could be done as part of this kind of push for 
greater neurodiversity in the teaching profession or other tricks that we're missing or the campaigns that we're not that we're not doing you know like how how would you address that yeah well i think the biggest thing just on what we can do for pupils first is i found mm, my own schooling that nobody monitored me for underachievement through lack of engagement because of my stutter so if i didn't do something or read out or whatever or i didn't perform well in a class play or nobody monitored for that and that's way back at primary so teachers need to track achievement in relationship to the potential of a young person and using whatever processes and systems are favored and just because a young person in the school it does not appear able to talk in a certain way that we would expect it doesn't mean that they're not understanding so i would always say in primary it's a good example if you're doing a speaking test you monitor or you track or you record whenever they happen to be speaking in a way you deem appropriate it doesn't have to be are they reading out that particular speech about dinosaurs they've written if they're talking about what they've done at the weekend and you can see them holding a room and pausing and all the things that you might yeah, have for and doing all the stuff you're after you, that's it you assess it when you see it okay so that's the big thing so monitoring for underachievement is really what i would be asking teachers to to focus on for our, in our young people who stutter and the sort of wider issue about neurodiversity i bring a certain skill set to teaching because of my stutter and my experiences yes and because of that I've gone into specialist schools, autism bases, and I'm now principal teacher of ASN in a big secondary school. So I've tailored in on an ASN. Other people with different disabilities or needs or quirks will bring so much to the profession based on their needs. So we need to be talking about that. Now, whether it's some sort of campaign, whether it's, I don't know, a, a Twitter campaign about embrace your quirks, come and teach, something like that. I some snazzy headline and people might think oh wait a minute actually i've done a lot because of this and i've been and yeah there will be so really people um, that go through struggle have a certain sympathy with yeah sorry. so sorry no sorry i cut, I cut you off there it was my fault <laughs> so you were saying that this idea that people no, no i was going to say when when people go through the Right, on you go yeah i was going to say those are people that those people that struggle in life will bring with them certain sympathies and certain attitudes that those that don't struggle won't be able to and i think that's that's the positives we need to be seeing in our teaching profession and especially all the research that's coming out is that young people although are they are building some resilience mental health eh, issues across young people is in crisis mode and i think we need people who understand what it's like to be um, in a crisis in a different way and dealing with it positively yeah that makes that makes a, a great a great deal of sense um so th um thank really thank thanks so much adam um for for joining us talk about that one i mean we could just, i could sit and talk about this for for hours with you um and i think it's something <laughs> As I say, I, I've, I've, I was kind of determined when I started this that, you know, I wanted to 
I'm not really interested in speaking to like, you know, let's see what the head of the GTCS has to say and stuff like that, you know. Um, but I think I think there's so much more value in this. And I think I suppose what I'm what I would sort of take away from this is that a, a similar thing to, to the issues that were being raised by, by Nusa as well. It's not that by you know getting more you know neurodiverse people into the profession would be somehow like doing them a favor. Although there is that side of things of needing to be more open and accessible, but actually. I think the way you mentioned there is, is the right way to end this. I think of it as until you do that, until you do manage to have, say, the teaching profession a place that neurodiversity is accepted and, and can be represented, the way to think about this is actually how much are we lacking just now? How many experiences are we not able to, to tap into? How many people are we, how many young people are we therefore not really able to help? because we don't have the people with the, the life experiences that they need um, for that kind of support as well. And that the profession needs to have developed that under that understanding. Um, thank you very, very much uh, to, to Adam Black. And um, we'll maybe have you, have you back at some point in the future, um, but these kind of issues, obviously. Um, but thank you. Thank you very much. And I'll, I'm sure I'll speak to you again soon. Thanks a lot. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cats. To find out more, Follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondelettersandsounds.org.uk Teachers Talk Radio is delighted to support Winston's Wish, the UK's childhood bereavement charity. Winston's Wish supports children and their families after the death of a parent or sibling. They provide emotional and practical bereavement support. Expert teams also provide online resources, specialist publications and training for professionals. Find out more about Winston's Wish and pledge your support at www.winstonswish.org. Hi again, everybody. Um, just, uh, I think, um, having going through that there may have been a few wee issues with the sound during the interview I kept seeing my signal was kind of floating about a little bit the weather here is not grand uh, so apologies if there were but um, again a big thank you to Adam for for joining us I found that a really um, really valuable conversation with a really interesting perspective so thank you very much to him and um, he's, uh, he's also on uh, on Twitter if you look up my tweets I've been tagging him tagging him in this so if you want to get in touch with him speak to him about any of his experiences I'm sure uh, I'm sure you wouldn't mind that at all so just before we wrap up um, as I've done the last couple of weeks there's you know maybe a kind of bigger issue that we've, we've looked at or discussed or something like that and there's not quite so much this week because it's the first week back after the holidays and everybody's fried and I've spent the last two weeks basically just kind of you know staggering through the world so but then serendipitously <laughs> something happened earlier on that um should you know give us a, a wee something to think about and um i'm kind of partly really doesn't want to do this right because i'm not really keen on this this sort of version of um of media and reporting that's all did you see what happened on twitter today you know 
Because who cares what happens in Twitter today? Um, Twitter's not real life at, at at all. And what does it what does it matter? Um, so so usually, you know, you see things in the, the press stuff like that, you know, about Twitter reactions, things like that. Or when you see articles that are essentially just based on here's what people on Twitter had to say about X, just right, close that and, and move on. But every so often, every so often, maybe it's worth it. And the tweet that I saw earlier on was from one Barry Smith. Um, and generally, I'd be reluctant to get into this, not even just because of the Twitter thing, but also because um, there's little to be gained realistically often from sort of getting involved in this kind of stuff when you've got what you know, looks like people kind of with a people with a brand to build and people with um, a particular perspective to, to present, shall we say. But the, the tweet itself, so I'll just said, let's quote it here. Um, are the photos BBC uses on the website real pupils in school uniforms? Uniform really bad, IMO. Now, of course, we can leave aside just now the, the decline in standards here that is represented by having adults sending out tweets with those kind of abbreviations that they haven't even bothered to punctuate. Um, and, you know, you'd have to you'd have to reflect on his, his part on that attack on civilization. But... Um, Yes, the photos are indeed of a real school. They're of a school in Scotland. And what the photos show, because of course you can't see this just now because they're on radio or a podcast, is a whole bunch of kids looking happy, walking down the corridor in their school, wearing school uniforms, including blazers, which are you know, just ridiculous, but they're wearing them. Um, but this seemed to cause some kind of outrage. The uniforms are really, really bad, you know, not enough... Um, not enough controls being exerted here, I suppose. And full disclosure, right, you know... Barry Smith and I aren't the two kind of people who are, I imagine, you know, going to sit down and see eye to eye on, on basically anything, you know. And actually, again, if we're really wanting you know, full disclosure here, people like Barry are, are examples that I've used of why Scottish education shouldn't follow the English model in terms of the actual uh, management organisation of schools. So there's certainly that. And that's, that's fair enough. I'm happy to kind of hold my hands up and say that's clearly going to have an influence here. But actually, I've got quite a long-standing view on this, this idea of people who obsess over school uniform. And I've always kind of felt people who obsess over minor infractions of, of pupil behaviour or who obsess particularly uniforms is a real clear one for me. These are people generally who I think lack confidence in themselves and their own abilities. These are people who are fundamentally scared of wanes. Um, people sometimes who, who just dislike wanes. And I, I don't mean by that, you know, who hate the individuals, but people who, who just want young people to become and, and act like ad adults are fundamentally people who don't like young people. Um, and there's also you know, the care people who ordering people around makes them feel makes them feel better, more important, more relevant, kind of thing. All different sorts of reasons that people kind of hook into it. But I always kind of think it's the kind of it, that, that, that kind of obsession, especially that one is the kind of educational equivalent of, you know, people say this is what a stupid person thinks a smart person looks like. I can always think that way with this sort of thing that applies. This is what this is this is what you know maybe weak teachers think a strong teacher looks like, you know. But the thing that really amuses me about it is the fact that you know it, it just doesn't matter, right? And people who think of themselves as very, very serious people get so very, very upset about it. If it, you know, if uniforms were so vital, right? If they if they really were this kind of you know wild silver bullet type of thing, um well. There are some obvious things, right? For example, there wouldn't be millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of kids around the world being educated perfectly well without them. Uh, you know, systems all around the world would be in crisis and racing to, to get their kids into things that look like British public school uniforms because apparently they were going to solve them. Clearly nonsense. The thing is, right, 
all this kind of vague idea about kids' appearances, it's a particular kind of appearance that reflects a particular kind of class divide as well. But ultimately what it's about is affecting attitudes. And it finally occurred to me, and particularly when you see all these people who are terribly serious and have got these attitudes with young people today, etc. But young people today have have actually got a really, really good word for this. It's vibes. This is the thing, right? This is what I've realised. This is what these people care about. Uniforms don't actually you know, do anything or something worth getting all that, getting so worked up about. And those weird obsessions that they seem to seem to reflect, you know, this isn't stuff to get bogged down in. This is about the vibes. That's what matters. And it remains very, very, very funny to me that the sort of people who see themselves as guardians of rigour or call themselves, I think the word that he's used in England is traditionalist, isn't it? Which, you know, people whose brains aren't, aren't addled by the sort of weird education debates that happen just recognise as being, you know, to the political right. Um, for those kind of people, though, to be to be ultimately, you know, so motivated by just, you know, generating good vibes is, um, I don't know, they kind of brighten things up a little bit for me. I think very entertaining, as I say, um, making the ridiculous make you look even more ridiculous. But remember that for next time you see these things, you know, all this obsession with it. Um, and it's the same with a lot of the behaviours like this, what we're talking about. It's vibes they care about. And it's very, very ironic. But the uniform thing goes a little bit Let's see, a little bit goes a long way beyond that, actually. And you saw it in the follow-up tweet, um, which made a particular point, being told this is what schools look like, I see lots of schools, and the, the bit, this particular bit that stands out, I think those skirts are particularly bad. Because it's always that, isn't it? It's always the same. It's always about police and girls' appearances and police and girls' and young women's bodies. It's always that. It's that it, it, like, Inevitably, I, I I left school two thousand and four. One of my great memories of high school was watching my best friend Claire absolutely tear strips off a deputy head teacher who had said to her that she wasn't sure if my friend Claire should become the vice captain in the school because of the length of her skirt. And I stood and I watched Claire absolutely demolish that deputy head teacher, and it remains one of my great educational memories because here's the thing right we see where that gets to this oh well we need to be careful particularly with what girls wear that always ends the same place which is people talking about you know oh but you know it might distract boys or even worse might distract male teachers with huge heavy euphemistic ear quotes around the word distraction right so if boys can't sit in a room or be in a school without getting distracted by girls this is a problem for boys this is an issue for schools to address with boys. This is not something that justifies policing girls' appearances, policing their bodies, because actually all that is is just nice old-fashioned sexism. And to repeat what um, somebody had, had replied to me on on Twitter with this as well, you know, it's one thing when we're when we do this with this obsession around you know policing women's bodies in terms of oh, but the boys in the class might get distracted because we couldn't possibly, folks, could we? We couldn't possibly expect boys to be the ones who are changing their behaviour. Oh no, we can't do that. Boys are the boys, you know. We can't be doing that at all. But we can, you know, control women all the time. We can control girls. We can make them feel that they are the problem. Um, and if what we're talking about isn't just the boys, if we're talking about, because I have heard this from teachers in the past, I've heard this from, from school leaders in the past, worried about male teachers being distracted, and that was actually very, very simple. Um, if you're a teacher and you're in a class and you're being distracted by what the girls are wearing, then you shouldn't be anywhere near a school classroom. So we can solve that one very, very, very easily. So always always good fun when you get into the uniform thing it's always patently ridiculous and there's always a bit of a laugh to be had but there is a more serious side to it and it is something that 
we've been doing forever. It was the case when I was at school. I'm sure it's still the case now. I'm sure there are still these situations where essentially girls are either told or made to feel like they must be policed in order to, you know, what we're talking here, save boys and save young men from themselves. And maybe, as with many things, this would be an area where it would be worth us just getting a bit of a grip and realising how harmful this kind of behaviour has been for so long. Um, so I suppose thank you. Uh, thank you, Zabaya Smith, I guess, um, for the tweet, because it gave us something to fill the last wee 10 minutes there, and it gave us a good laugh, I suppose. But also, let's talk about something serious. So a bit of a public service going on there, which is absolutely grand. Um, so thank you, everybody, for, for joining me again this week. Um, again, obviously, again, I'll keep saying it, but thanks very much to Adam for coming and speaking to us. Really, really appreciate that. Hopefully, I, I, we've got, got a thing on in the text, and it was really good to hear, you know, what kind of signs to look for and how we can help. And I... I thought the same as a teacher myself. It's something that I'll be I'll be keeping in mind. So if that's been useful to people, that's been great. If you are interested in more of the issues around Scottish education, obviously you can follow me on Twitter. And um, if there are things that we're not covering, if there are issues that need to be raised, things that need to be addressed, whatever it is, you know, well, I'd very much like to be here and, and at least try and offer some kind of avenue for that kind of stuff. So thank you for joining me. Um, thanks to people like Teacher Talk Radio for having me as well. And um, I'll talk to you all again soon. Thanks. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.